Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. The Supreme Court heard arguments over the Mississippi abortion law. The thing that is at issue before us today is 15 weeks. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. An examination of how COVID impacted San Diego based on education. If you had a bachelor's degree, you were more than half as less likely to die as someone who didn't. Our investigation into police use of force continues and a first-of-its-kind lawsuit over hair discrimination. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Arguments have concluded in the U.S. Supreme Court today whether or not to uphold a Mississippi state law that bans abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. Here's some of what transpired in today's proceedings asking for, but the thing that is at issue before us today is 15 weeks. And um, I just wonder what the strength of your reliance arguments, um, which sounded to me like being based on a total prohibition, uh, would be if there isn't a total prohibition. The case has drawn attention across the country, which many view as the biggest threat to legal abortion in decades. With its potential impact on Roe v. Wade, the landmark Supreme Court decision which protects abortion rights. Joining me is Maggie Schroeder, a San Diego lawyer and president of the Lawyers Club of San Diego, to talk more about the case and its potential implications for California. Maggie, welcome. Thank you so much for having me this afternoon. I'm happy to be here. So what is the Supreme Court being asked to weigh in on? What is at issue now is a Mississippi law that is currently not in effect, but it would ban almost all abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy, which would be a dramatic change or break from the last 50 years of Supreme Court rulings. 
um, including Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which have both reaffirmed a woman's constitutional right to terminate a pregnancy before viability. And viability is considered to be um, scientifically about 24 weeks into a pregnancy. Mm. Is this Mississippi case a direct challenge to Roe v. Wade? I would consider it to be a direct challenge to Roe, yes, to Roe versus Wade. However, I believe that the challenge, or excuse me, the state, Mississippi state in this case, is not framing it in such a way. And I also, after listening to the argument, oral argument, believe that the justices, if they do uphold this Mississippi law, they would likely try to do so without directly overruling Roe versus Wade. Hmm. Arguments have ended after about two hours of sometimes contentious debate. What stood out to you from today's arguments? What stood out to me is just the strength of the, um, you know, the respondent's attorney's argument regarding viability being a liberty issue. And what I mean by that is, you know, there was a lot of questioning from the justice as to, well, you know, basically a 15-week ban is not an ultimate ban. So it doesn't necessarily, and in all cases, prohibit abortion. But what the argument, or you know, what um, the respondent's attorney was saying is, look, this is a liberty issue. And before viability, the state has no interest in protecting that particular pregnancy, or at least not a substantial interest that would overcome the undue burden that a woman or a person who can become pregnant faces when having to potentially obtain an abortion before that 24-week viability period. Hmm. Do we have any idea on how the court may rule in this case? I, you know, I'd like to be optimistic. Um, Listening to the oral argument, I think my impression is that they appeared prepared to uphold the Mississippi law. Um, but, you know, we'll have to wait and see into, until June. But that's that was my impression just after listening to oral argument. Of course, the issue there is we can expect that at least 20 other states will now impose either similar or more restrictive abortion legislation in their own states. We've seen Texas, um, you know, implemented or passed the Texas AB8 law, which prohibits abortions after just six weeks of pregnancy. So when a fetal heartbeat is detected. And so we can expect that if this law is upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court, that other laws similar or even more restrictive will also be upheld and that the states will feel that they can, you know, go ahead and and pass those very restrictive legislation measures. So with that, in your view, will this have the potential then to ultimately overturn Roe v. Wade? Yes, I absolutely think it will. Um, even though, again, I don't think the Supreme Court, and this is just my opinion, I don't think the Supreme Court will say that um, say that directly, but I think it will, right? Because what Roe tells us is that a woman has a constitutional right, a constitutional right to terminate her pregnancy after, excuse me, pre-viability, which is at 24 weeks. And it, upholding the Texas law would mean it would be unlawful for a woman or a doctor to perform an abortion on a woman after 15 weeks of pregnancy. So that is a direct contradiction to what Roe tells us. Um, and also its progeny, which includes Planned Parenthood versus Casey. So yes, if, if the Supreme Court upholds this law, I do think it would have the effect of completely overruling Roe. And the Supreme Court is expected to announce its decision in June. Would it potentially impact us here in California? Right now in California, the abortion laws here, um, we're following Roe, basically. So women have a fundamental right to terminate their pregnancies before the fetus is viable, so about 24 weeks, and also when the procedure is necessary to protect the life and the health of the mother. 
if the Mississippi law is upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court, I don't expect that the law would change in California. And that's based on the current layout of the legislature here, as well as the governor. Um, however, if those layouts of you know the political parties in charge of our state were to change, which they obviously could someday, um, certainly then we would be um, in the same risk as any other you know state. I mean, if a legislature passes a different law, we can't expect that the U.S. Supreme Court would say that's unconstitutional. So I don't believe that we're at a direct risk today, women in California. But I do think that um, if this is the case, certainly in the future, we, you know, any state could potentially enact more restrictive abortion measures as a result of this ruling. I've been speaking with San Diego lawyer and president of the Lawyers Club of San Diego, Maggie Schroeder. Maggie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. During the first year of the COVID pandemic, the catchphrase, we're all in this together, was everywhere. But it soon became clear that some of us were much more in this than others. Statistics revealed wide disparities in who was getting sick, where most people were catching the virus, and what activities put people most at risk. Now, in an in-depth investigative report by Voice of San Diego, looking at more than 4,000 death certificates of San Diegans who died from COVID, those disparities are clearer than ever. Joining me is Voice of San Diego reporter Will Huntsbury, who, with fellow reporters Jesse Marks and Bella Ross, examined San Diego deaths in the first year of COVID. And Will, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Maureen. The headline in your report is, is startling. It says, a college degree was an insurance policy against death. Can you explain what that means? We don't know exactly why it is, but literally having a bachelor's degree meant you were much less likely to die from COVID-19 in San Diego and quite possibly across the United States. You know, um, people with a bachelor's degree, for whatever reason, were super insulated from the worst effects. And partially, maybe that's because they weren't doing essential work, let's say. But then again, you know, we know that most people who died were retired age. So that's not totally it. Maybe it's also telling us something about poverty and that people who have more education tend to make more money. But, you know, if you had a bachelor's degree, you were, were more than half is less likely to die as someone who didn't. And like you said, I just think that's really startling. And and we didn't have a, a handle on that level of detail about the disparity until now. Did you start out examining COVID deaths through the lens of education levels? We didn't necessarily start there. Um, we made a public records request for every death certificate during the first year um, of the pandemic for all COVID related deaths, because we really, you know, we thought it was going to be, we thought we knew something was going to come of it. And we thought it was important to bear witness to this terrible death toll, you know, 4,000 people in a year in San Diego County. And then we discovered that those death certificates were really rich with information about education level, about the job a person had, about, um, where they were born, whether it was in the United States or not. And so once we started crunching those numbers, you know, we just found some really uh, uniquely shocking and, and even terrifying stuff. Now, in your report, you profile a few of the people who died of COVID last year. Can you tell us the story of Gregory Denny of Hamul? 
Gregory Denny, he was a 48-year-old security guard at Taylor Guitars in El Cajon. But he was not your average 48-year-old. He was actually working on finishing his bachelor's degree. He was married. He had a couple of kids. He'd served in the Gulf Wars. And in the summer of 2020, he wasn't finished with that bachelor's degree yet. And he came down with COVID. He was hospitalized and put in the ICU. And unfortunately, like so many people, he was killed by this virus. And with Mr. Denny, the university he was studying at, they actually awarded him his bachelor's posthumously because he he hadn't finished it. And so he was a member of the graduating class of 2021. And, you know, his story is really powerful. I'm certainly not saying that had he finished that bachelor's degree, he, he would have, um, you know, not died from COVID. But this was a working age man. He was 48 years old. And, you know, people with bachelor's degrees were much more likely to be able to stay at home. And and when other people were at home, he was working his security guard job. And and that is where his wife thinks he, he contracted COVID. There have been many ways to frame the difference in COVID death rates among populations. Another one is in the second part of your report, finding that more than half of the San Diegans who died were immigrants. Tell us about that. Yeah, we found so many disparities in these statistics that were big and scary. And I think we all knew there were these disparities, but we just didn't understand what a fine point was on it. I mean, in San Diego County, 23% of people are immigrants. But among those who died from COVID, 52% were immigrants. So there's this really huge disparity, just like with bachelor's degrees, and we don't totally understand it. There could be a lot of reasons that immigrants were more at risk. They were more likely to live in multi-generational housing. They're more likely to speak a different language, and maybe they weren't getting good information about COVID in their native language. The other statistic that was really shocking was people without a high school diploma. You know, Among immigrants who died, 50% did not have a high school diploma. Among non-immigrants, just 10% did not have a high school diploma. So, you know, education, again, seems to be a really important variable here. The biggest risk factor of death, though, remains among the elderly population, doesn't it? That's right. The median age was 76. You know, we know that COVID-19 hits old people much harder than young people. And our database shows that too. But but out of 4,000 deaths, you know, we also see in our database that 1,000 people were working age. They were 65 or younger. So, you know, I don't think most people um, think of dying before they're finish with their working age. And that's what happened to 25% of the people in our database. Now, you hinted uh, that one of the reasons that could account for this education level disparity, even though many of the people who died were already retired, is a chronic disparity in health results for people who are rich and poor and white and people of color. Can you tell us how that might have contributed to the higher death toll? You know, we've heard of a couple really COVID specific things, right? Maybe you're more, you were more likely to work an essential labor, you were more likely to ride the bus, and that put you more in harm's way. But there's even like deeper issues at play about chronic illnesses like diabetes and um, hypertension and heart disease. In the poorest neighborhoods in San Diego, it's very hard to find a healthy grocery store. There's no Vons, there's no Trader Joe's, there's definitely not a Whole Foods. And so it's harder to eat well 
And that means you're more likely to get diabetes. And what's also true about those areas is they're less walkable. It's harder to get exercise. There's less parks. That means you're more likely to be obese. You know, all these chronic conditions made it much more likely for a person to die from COVID. In our database, 80% of the people who died had a chronic health condition. But even just one layer deeper, Maureen, just the stress of poverty itself seems to put people at risk. We know that poorer children have higher blood pressures than their peers. And, you know, high blood pressure leads to hypertension and that can cause heart attack and stroke and hypertension itself puts you more at risk with COVID. And so, you know, the layers of how poverty interacts with this disease are, are deeply interwoven. Now, you know, I suppose if you asked most people on the street, they'd readily tell you that wealthier people get better medical care and are more protected from contagious disease than poorer people. So that in and of itself is not a shocking revelation. So what significance do you think this report has about the disparities in COVID deaths between rich and poor? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that question, actually. And and I think you're right. I think people are aware that there have been disparities with COVID. But I think we were hearing a lot of that information over and over again during the height of the pandemic. And I think people were really overwhelmed, you know, um, and, and burnt out even on news at a certain point. You know, they were all personally going through something different. We were di difficult. We were globally going through something difficult and awful. And I think now is a good time to revisit the impact of, of the, you know, the worst part of the pandemic we saw in that first year at a time when people can actually like absorb those disparities and think about their own communities and look around them and say, you know, wow, people in certain zip codes did really well, you know, that, and people in other ones did really badly and, and, and not just by a little bit. And I think that has the potential to drive decision-making in the future about public policy around health decisions, you know, where to put testing centers for, for a, in a pandemic, where to put vaccine centers. We should be putting them in the poorest areas uh, and, and we should be unequivocal about that because I think our data shows that, you know, you don't need those support things nearly as much in the richer neighborhoods. And so, I think um, I think it's a good time for us to relook at this and absorb it. And, you know, hopefully it can drive public policy in the future. You can find Voice of San Diego's series of reports on COVID deaths on their website, voiceofsandiego.org. And I've been speaking to Voice of San Diego reporter Will Hunsbury. Will, thank you very much. Thanks, Maureen. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.
This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heineman. California lawmakers are debating a bill that would prevent a law enforcement agency from investigating its own officers when they shoot people. Right now, these investigations are conducted by the officers' own departments. KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser found that in those investigations, officers can get different treatment than the people they shoot. A warning, this story contains graphic descriptions and sounds. In the early morning hours of a Sunday in March 2016, two men made choices that led to police investigations. But how the investigations were conducted and their outcomes couldn't have been more different. The first was Jose Blanco, an undocumented immigrant who had gotten into a fight outside a 7-Eleven in Vista. Then Blanco saw a group of men rushing toward him. He and his wife jumped in his car and tried to get away. My intention was to rescue my wife and not to get beaten. But when the others arrived, I was scared even more. Blanco didn't know it, but the men who rushed him were off-duty sheriff's deputies. The deputies surrounded Blanco's car. He first threw it in reverse, hitting one of the deputies, then lurched forward. That's when Deputy Jason Phillips ended up on the hood of the car. Um, I was either straddling the hood or laying literally on the windshield because I could see his white T-shirt and see him driving. Um, And I I knew I was going to either fall off the vehicle and be crushed or he was going to accelerate at a high rate of speed onto, excuse me, East Fist away and I would be badly injured or killed. And uh, at that point, I discharged my revolver through the windshield trying to stop him um, from driving off. Though Phillips was not working, not in uniform, he was armed with a concealed handgun. And he'd spent the night drinking two to three shots of tequila and three to four beers, he later told investigators. He shot Blanco multiple times, but Blanco survived. Blanco told detectives he had no idea the men who rushed his car were police. I didn't know who they were because they didn't have a uniform. If I had known they were cops, I've seen so many stories of people being shot you and killed. Do you think I want to die? Later that morning, both Blanco and Phillips were questioned by detectives. But that's where the similarities of their experiences end. Phillips' questioning was straightforward even friendly at times. He had a lawyer with him, and the detectives helped him arrive at answers. I had, my drinking had stopped significantly earlier in the evening, and I'm not sure how to word it. My, I was, Let me my, ask you the question. I think what he's getting at was at any time during the evening did you feel that you were intoxicated? No. Okay. okay. That's exactly what I was getting <laughs> Meanwhile, Blanco was interviewed by sheriff's detectives in the hospital without a lawyer. The detective challenged him over and over, telling him he was lying. Because you are not going to tell me you don't remember? I know you are not a liar. Now is not the time to tell lies. How did you hit them? I swear to you, I don't. I don't remember hitting anyone in reverse. No. How is that possible? I mean, you are not telling me. What are you afraid of? What are you hiding? Police officers have a presumption of innocence or a presumption of fair play. Anne Rios is a defense attorney who often represents people subject to force by police. Yet victims slash suspects don't have that presumption of innocence, which is ironic since it really is the defendant 
or the accused that actually does have a constitutional right to a presumption of innocence. Dave Myers is a retired sheriff's commander who's undergone internal affairs interviews. He says investigators often take a friendly approach toward their fellow officers. It is the fox watching the hen house. If the intention is a fair and impartial fact-finding mission, I mean, the internal affairs processes, and I've talked about this for years, are, are flawed. And it's, and it's flawed and it's intended to benefit the law enforcement agency. The sheriff's department would not agree to an interview for this story. Phillips's lawyer, Richard Pinkard, says officers who shoot suspects are properly scrutinized. They can face multiple investigations from their own department's homicide division, then internal affairs, then outside agencies. He wrote in an email to KPBS, the two separate in-depth investigations into Phillips' actions were appropriate under the circumstances. This incident was thoroughly investigated by the Sheriff's Department and then independently investigated by the District Attorney's Special Operations Division, he wrote. The DA concluded that Deputy Phillips' use of lethal force was legally justified under prevailing law given the totality of the circumstances which is why Deputy Phillips was not charged. In a KPBS review of more than 300 internal records from local police agencies, only one officer has ever been charged for shooting someone. That happened last summer, when Sheriff's Deputy Aaron Russell was charged with murder after he shot a mentally ill man who escaped from a police vehicle and was running away. The KPBS review also found just five cases that result in any punishment for the officer. This case with Phillips was one of them, but it wasn't for shooting Blanco. He was reassigned and suspended without pay for four days for violating department policy. The violation was for carrying a gun while he was drinking. Meanwhile, Blanco was ultimately charged with multiple counts of assault, including assault with a deadly weapon for hitting the deputies with his car. He pleaded guilty to assault and was then deported to Mexico. Claire Tregesser, KPBS News. To search the police records and see a map of where these incidents occurred, go to kpbs.org slash police records. A local employer is being sued for allegedly violating the California Crown Act, which makes hair discrimination illegal. Crown is an acronym for Create a Respectful and Open Workplace for Natural Hair. As enacted by California, the law extends both to hairstyles associated with race as well as other racially associated traits such as dress and speech. The lawsuit alleges an employee with Encore Group LLC was denied a position because of his locks. Joining me to talk about the case and the Crown Act is Dan Eaton, legal analyst and partner with Seltzer, Kaplan, McMahon, and Vitek. Dan, welcome. Thank you, Jade. Good to be with you. So this is a first-of-its-kind case, which alleges an employer violated the Crown Act. What does the Crown Act say specifically about the workplace and discrimination? Well, what the Crown Act did was it was a measure enacted in 2019 by the California legislature that prohibits discrimination based on, quote, traits historically associated with race, including but not limited to hair texture, close quote, and hairstyles, such as 
afros, braids, twists, and locks. Uh, In this case, the lawsuit says Jeffrey Thornton, uh, who wears his hair in locks, was furloughed with Encore during the early days of the pandemic. He relocated to San Diego, was invited to interview here for a position with the same company, and was told he was qualified for the position, but needed to change his hair, among other things. Uh, Does this sound like a strong case to you? Uh, Did this company violate the Crown Act? Well, we don't know, Jade, because we only have one side of the story at this point. Understand that uh, notwithstanding uh, the Crown Act, uh, employers still have the right to set a general uh, grooming uh, grooming uh, qualifications and, and certain policies. But what they cannot do is they cannot discriminate uh, based on uh, hairstyles and other characteristics associated with race. So you're looking at one side of it, and it certainly he states a plausible claim under the Crown Act, but whether he'll ultimately prevail will depend on what other defenses the employer may have. And the California Department of Fair Employment and Housing issued a right to sue letter to Thornton uh, after he filed a claim against Encore. How significant is that? Not at all, because he got that right to sue letter right after uh, he uh, filed his administrative complaint, which is a necessary prerequisite to filing a lawsuit. And if you have a lawyer, uh, if an employee has a lawyer, they frequently say, you know what, Fair Employment uh, Department of Fair Employment and Housing, dispense with your own investigation. I want to go right to court, which is what he did. And I want to raise a point that you just did, which is about the first of its kind. I actually looked this up. And the fact is that, yeah, I haven't found any cases, even looking at a national database that embraced the Crown Act. What I did find, interestingly, was an August of 2021 case out of Alabama, of all places, that said uh, that while they don't have a Crown Act there and there's no federal Crown Act under Title VII, uh, you cannot use uh, hairstyles as a proxy for racial discrimination, which is what the court said, at least the plaintiff had plausibly alleged in that case just a few months ago. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. And and I want to talk uh, more about the Crown Act a a bit, which aims to protect people's right to their cultural identity and racial heritage. I mean, can you talk about the ways those things are tied to one's hair? Well, they are tied to one's hair. Obviously, uh, there are hairstyles that are traditionally associated uh, particularly with uh, African-Americans. And it's part of the uh, identity uh, that uh, African-Americans uh, bring to work and it expresses who they are. It was the sense that you want to protect that that led to the Crown Act because up to this point, Title VII, uh, the EEOC, which enforces Title VII, the federal law has been clear that while immutable characteristics such as hair texture are protected, changeable or mutable characteristics such as hairstyle or not are not. And that's what the Crown Act was designed to protect, is that if the hairstyle is associated with racial identity, you've got to protect that because it's part of the expression of an African-American as an African-American. And can you give me some examples of protected hairstyles? Well, afros are the obvious one where you have a long, bushy uh, hairstyle, which I actually had until a week ago Saturday when I had my hair cut, Uh, dreadlocks, cornrows, locks, which are somewhat different, and and there are the uh, hairstyles that this particular uh, plaintiff has. Interestingly, under the Crown Act, you don't have to be a member of the race whose hairstyle is associated with a particular hairstyle to assert a claim under the Crown Act. I think the assumption is, though, uh, that it's going to be brought by those whose uh, race matches the historical association with a particular hairstyle. Hmm. To your knowledge, has Encore said anything about the allegations in the lawsuit? No, I, the Union Tribune ran a front page story today on it, and uh, Encore apparently did not actually 
respond at this point. They'll have uh, 30 days. This was just filed uh, yesterday uh, to uh, make its first response. They'll probably file a general answer. That's my assumption. And then uh, litigation will ensue. And is this case something you think California employers will be watching closely? Oh, sure they will. Because uh, as you said, it's it seems to be the first of its kind in California or anywhere uh, involving the Crown Act. There are a number of jurisdictions, about a dozen, according to the Union Tribune story, that have enacted it, as well as New York City administratively uh, has, uh, has said that hairstyles are protected. So this is going to be one to watch. I think, though, most employers have moved beyond the idea of actually setting limits on uh, racially associated hairstyles. I've been speaking with Dan Eaton, legal analyst and partner with Seltzer Kaplan, McMahon and Vitek. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be with you, Jade. Some insults, disputed statistics, and bad feelings have surrounded a redistricting controversy in north-central San Diego. Tonight, the City of San Diego's redistricting committee will consider the latest map that moves the Torrey Hills community from District 1 into District 6. That would relocate the neighborhood politically from upscale communities like Carmel Valley to more culturally diverse Mira Mesa. Some Tory Hills residents who oppose the change have been outspoken in their desire not to be linked with Mira Mesa for reasons ranging from property values to a lack of religious and professional affinity with the neighborhood. Joining me is San Diego Union Tribune reporter David Garrick. David, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Why did the proposal to move Tory Hills into District 6, why did that come up in the first place? It doesn't appear to have been intentional. It appears to be a, a sort of a reverberative impact of trying to solve some other problems, you know, in particular, trying to unite Claremont into one community. So I don't think anyone deliberately did it. But when you're working out the numbers and you're trying to keep all the districts of equal population, you end up having to move stuff that maybe you didn't want to move. Now, don't city council districts have to be contiguous? And does Torrey Hills link up with Mira Mesa? You know, they do have to be contiguous, and it is, but they ha- the, the, the current map, as proposed, it's not a final map, draws a kind of a weird angular thing to include Torrey Hills. And it does look a little bit uh, not as, as square and, and uh, circular as we would normally expect. Is there a large difference in ethnicity between residents in Mira Mesa and Torrey Hills? There is. It's kind of striking. I mean, Torrey Hills is almost 50 percent white and and they want to be connected to Carmel Valley, which is 55 percent white. And then Mira Mesa is only about 25 percent white. So that's a lot of stark differences you find in San Diego. Maybe not, but certainly in in the conversation for a, a leading one. This is the second time there's been a fight over a community being moved into District 6. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so Rancho Peñasquit is 10 years ago, the last time the city did this. The city basically every 10 years when there's new census data, they have to redraw the boundaries. So that's sort of why we're here. And 10 years ago when the city was doing that, they sliced off a part of Rancho Peñasquit is called Park Village, the southern part of it, uh, and put it in District 6, severing it from District 5, which people in Park Village felt they had more in common with because of the Powell Unified School District and some other elements. But that united uh, Park Village, a part of Rancho Peñasquitas, with Mira Mesa. Uh, And then this time around, as Park Village has been lobbying to not have that happen anymore, they have basically sort of said some disparaging comments back in the summer about Mira Mesa, and there was a huge flap. And it's died down now, but it was definitely a frustrating situation for Mira Mesa residents uh, and Mira Mesa community leaders. 
And is Penasquitos, that Park Village area, still in District 6 in the new proposed map? In the tentative proposed map right now, it's reunited with the rest of Penasquitos in District 5, and it seems likely that will stick. That seems like a firm commitment by the Redistricting Commission to keep Rancho Penasquitos whole. Anything can happen. There's three more meetings, but I think I would bet that it's going to stay that way. Now, how has the controversy over the Tory Hills move into District 6 presented itself? I believe that there was a letter submitted to the redistricting committee. No, I think it's important to make a fine distinction here because I got some emails from Tory Hills residents in the last couple of days saying I was accusing them of, of being racist. And I, I don't think that that's really the, the case. I mean, obviously, you, you never know. But I think a, a huge chunk of Tory Hills residents have really focused on the fact that they are connected to Carmel Valley. They share recreation centers, they share shopping plazas. They have a lot of shared things with the community. Uh, And the form letter that a lot of them sent in basically focused on those elements. But there were a few speakers from Torrey Hills who sort of went beyond that to say negative things about Mira Mesa. So instead of just focusing on how they're connected to Carmel Valley, they also noted that they are not connected to Mira Mesa. They don't have anything in common with Mira Mesa. And that's where they got into the issues of professionally, religiously. So I think that's where some, maybe some people in Mira Mesa felt like they were, that they went over the line in their comments. And, and how have leaders in Mira Mesa responded to that? So the same way they did to the Penasquitas thing. They say every neighborhood has a right to fight for whatever they want on this map. I mean, this is a, a battle among neighborhoods to see how you're politically going to be represented. It's important. And Mira Mesa doesn't want to prevent any other neighborhood from fighting for their rights. But they say, hey, when you're doing that, try not to say really unflattering things about our neighborhood. Could you refrain from maybe saying disparaging comments that make judgments about our neighborhood while you're fighting for whatever you want? You also write that commission members have said that they hope to move Tory Hills back into District 1 in their final map. Why is that? Well, I think everyone agrees that this was sort of an unintended consequence. No one specifically wanted to move Tory Hills out of District 1. But when you were trying to do the numbers and trying to unite Claremont into one community, and you had to move a bunch of different neighborhoods around because of population, this was a neighborhood that the folks who were proposing it moved just to make the numbers match up. No one thought this is a smart move. They just tried to make the numbers match up. And I think now they're trying to figure out a way to undo that and make the numbers match up in some other way. And there's a redistricting commission meeting tonight, only a few more before the final map is presented. How can people join tonight's meeting? Uh, if you go to san diego.gov slash redistricting dash commission, you can go there or just go to Google and type in uh, redistricting commission San Diego. Uh, you can go there. There's a Zoom link uh, and there's a meeting tonight. There's also a meeting scheduled for December 7th and December 9th. Uh, and they have a deadline of December 15th to adopt a final map. I've been speaking with San Diego Union-Tribune reporter David Garrick. David, thank you. Thanks. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. Elephants have a multi-step greeting ritual, including to put their trunks into one another's mouth. It's their way of shaking hands. So what can we take away from knowing about animal rituals like this one? Well, earlier this year, we were joined by academic author and photographer Caitlin O'Connell, who also happens to be a San Diegan, to talk about her book, Wild Rituals, 10 Lessons Animals Can Teach Us About Connection, Community, and Ourselves. 
In general, what can we say, what can we take away, rather, from understanding rituals that take place in both human and wild animal societies? Well, the reason I wrote this book was I was so struck by how important ritual is to the rest of the animal kingdom that I realized that there's a lot of ritual that we tend to neglect. And I think, you know, I started writing this book before the pandemic, but I I think the pandemic has made us realize what we're losing by not being in person with each other, by not being able to smile at each other because we all have to wear masks to stay safe, and hugging or shaking hands. Those are really important greeting rituals that sometimes we take for granted, even in our own households, you know, looking at each other in the eye in the morning, you're all rushing to our coffee machine and kind of uh, get my coffee. But just that simple moment of looking at your partner or family member, loved one in the eye and saying good morning seems so obvious, but it's often just overlooked. And I wanted to bring back the idea of how important simple rituals are in our lives. So I focus on 10 that I see on a daily basis in the wild with elephants and other animals. And uh, I thought it would help us look in the mirror more closely and, and realize the importance of ritual in our lives. And if it helps us to look in the mirror, does it help us create and increase compassion? Definitely, because if we realize that we're all this extended family, really, we're all social animals and all of these rituals are important. If they're important to other animals and to us, then that makes us more interconnected and, and compassionate. You know, seeing other animals going through grieving rituals is a really stunning reminder of how similar we are and and how we have the same needs, emotional needs. I described a part of an elephant ritual earlier, but can you give me another example of an animal ritual that you write about in the book? Sure. You know, the the whole idea of greeting is really to disarm uh, another individual's and maintain peace. So, for example, two black rhinos coming into a water hole to drink They're very aggressive and very territorial, but the first thing they do is basically leave their swords at the door. They come up to each other and put their horns face to face and then kind of do a little bit of a a jousting motion back and forth with their horns. And then all of the anxiety is just released and then they can drink in peace knowing that they did this. So it's a very interesting thing for an elephant is a very trusting thing to place a trunk in another's mouth. The other the other elephant could bite off the tip of his trunk. So by doing that, it's a very trusting and very similar to the handshake because it's like, I see you, uh, I respect you. Uh, and, and the original act of the handshake is thought to show the other person that they're not carrying a weapon. So this very disarming aspect to a greeting ritual that keeps the peace aside from the bonding aspect of it. You know, connection and community are are two aspects of daily life that so many of us are struggling to get a handle on these days. Just what is it about animal rituals that can help us strengthen our understanding of that? 
Yeah, connection is a really important one, and, and um, I drive this home in my group rituals chapter. It's thought that we developed group rituals in order to facilitate hunting. In our early days, we had to hunt the giant sloth and the mammoth, and there's no way that one person could do that by themselves. But by engaging in ritual in order to build trust in, in a hunting party, these kinds of behaviors developed. So what is a group ritual? And you think of a marching band and synchronized swimmers, they all are doing something, a repeated action that's recognizable and, or, you know, religious rite, repeating a prayer or singing together. These actions stimulate the amygdala and other areas of the brain to focus their attention on that one thing. And that also facilitates long-term memory and, and what these simple actions of moving your arms in a synchronized way with other members of the group creates a bonding and identity within that group and makes you feel stronger and empowered and having this group cohesive nature. Uh, so we all have these rituals and the same mechanism for creating that strength in the group. Um, but it's very important to keep that in perspective so that we make group rituals a positive thing and not a negative thing. So then what is the impact of not being able to engage in these rituals? Well, I think we're all feeling the isolation from the pandemic. Um, being in physical contact, tactile contact, in just being in presence and not over Zoom, you know, Zoom, at least you get to see each other's faces and facial expressions. But the non-spoken ritual aspect of being in the same room, there's uh, hormones like oxytocin, which is called the bonding hormone that occurs between a mother and a baby or two loved ones or even you and your dog. When you gaze at each other and are in physical proximity, you gain these hormonal benefits and those benefits really help facilitate stronger relationships. And we're, we're really suffering from not being able to be together. Do you have any thoughts on how we can continue to perform some of these rituals right now when we need to stay six feet away uh, from people who don't live with us? Well, that's an excellent question. I think one of the things is that I think a lot of us tend to get a little lazy and not want to have to deal with this. Um, and so we just turn further into ourselves as opposed to saying, you know what, it's still important and we have to be six feet apart, but at least we can be together. And it takes more energy to figure out how to stay connected, but it's all the more important to do so now because we're all suffering from this. That was author and photographer Caitlin O'Connell talking about her book, Wild Rituals, 10 Lessons Animals Can Teach Us About Connection, Community, and Ourselves. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. 
We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.